welcome to PhD Addicted to Research. Um, today's session is about smoking cessation in addiction treatment services. We've got Zoe with us today talking about her PhD research in this topic area, covering why it's interesting, what happens with delivery in addiction services and also situations where it's not delivered. And we also have interviews with Dr. Tom Ainscow during the podcast as well. My name's Rachel. I'm a an SSA funded PhD student based at the University of Hull. My area of interest is alcohol withdrawal in the acute hospital settings. Um, and I'm currently just starting my second year, wrapping up my systematic review and working on some big data um, collected from hospitals in England um, focused around alcohol withdrawal. So I'm just gonna hand over to Zoe so that um, she can introduce herself. Hi Zoe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rachel. Um, so hi, everyone. Uh, I, my name is Zoe Swithenbank and I'm a PhD student at Liverpool John Moores University and I'm looking at smoking cessation in drug and alcohol treatment services. Thanks for that, Zoe. Um, so first of all, if it's all right with you, if we could just look at why you're interested in this area, sort of what attracted you to it and what's most interesting to you about this sort of topic. Um so I started doing this. I used to work in, in treatment services uh, a few years ago. And one day we went to uh, the National Recovery Walk and uh, the local public health people had asked a few of us to go and um, interview people about smoking and ask them if they wanted to quit and, and send them up to the, the van they had with with all this cool equipment. So there's all of us walking around to, up to people in the smoking area because that's where you find smokers. Um, and the amount of people that were just like utterly bemused or just, outraged that, that people would, would try and challenge them about smoking. We weren't being particularly aggressive. It was just you know, asking people to talk about it. So I was like, this is a really big topic. Everybody here is smoking and nobody wants to know anything about it. So that's kind of how I ended up in it. Okay, so the recovery walk was, um, is that, so that's obviously, is that from um, people who've been through addictions treatment or who had been engaged with services? I think it's anyone that, that self-identifies as being in recovery. It's generally used in, in substance use, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they do the National Recovery Walk every, well, most years. So yeah, it's, it's generally a really good day, really kind of positive and sort of uplifting, but um, yeah, nobody wants to talk about smoking. Okay, that's that's really interesting. And then um, why do you think this area of research is, is so important? What makes it important to you? I think it it's it's important because I think everybody knows that, that smoking is really bad, <laughs> for want of a better term. Um but it uh, and there's a lot done kind of to the wider population to address this you know i think the uk has got a smoking rate of about 14% now which is really good but people in well, people with substance use disorders the the rates of of smoking are, are something like what between what 75 and eight, 98% which compared to 14 is just ridiculous and it uh, i just think it's really important that that should be addressed you know smoking is is really harmful and yet we're just kind of ignoring a whole group of people and, and just not doing anything about it and yeah I find that well, it's definitely something that needs addressing. Yeah 100% that's so interesting hearing the, that comparison in in figures and smoking rates why do you think it is sort of ignored in in that group? I think that, I mean there's a lot of different opinions on this but I think a lot of people are very much of the opinion that it's kind of one one issue at a time you know a lot of people say they find smoking quite relaxing or it helps with anxiety or whatever and you know people in in, in substance use treatment it's generally quite a stressful time so you can understand why people perhaps don't want to address it then and there but yeah there's, there's a lot of I think they're just falling through the cracks a lot which is kind of probably true of, of a lot of forms of healthcare. Yeah so I guess there's maybe um, 
like we're dealing with this particular issue it's a it's a big thing it's a difficult thing focus on this and then look at something else uh yeah so I did the same sort of thing for my master's I, I interviewed somebody that was working in treatment service at the time uh, and when I asked him about smoking he, he told me that you know we've got people coming in injecting into their groin um you know on a, on a daily basis they, they don't care about smoking <laughs> it's like yeah I mean fair point you're not going to say to you know when someone comes in and you know, shows you their abscesses and whatever. You're not going to be like, have you thought about smoking while you're here? You know, yeah, it, it's not a priority for a lot of people. And you can kind of, you know, I, I get that. I, I can see why that's the case. Doesn't mean we shouldn't yeah. be addressing it at some point, though. No, absolutely. You can see why when someone's really unwell in their, um, in the thing that they're coming for treatment for, whether it's substance use or or alcohol, um, that it must be just key to sort of prioritise that. But like you say, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be focused on at some point. And the whole point about recovery is that you know it's not a quick process um and you know it, it's generally and there's many different definitions of recovery but it's generally you know it's it's making life better it's you know remo- not just removing the substance it's about changing life you know making that better in so many different ways and health's definitely one of those aspects that is often yeah. overlooked um i'd love to hear about the difference between um, what delivery of smoking cessation might look like in an addiction service compared to a more generic public health or um, like your GP surgery, for example. If you go to your GP as a smoker, they can signpost you into smoking cessation. And, and is that different from what there should be in addictions or should it be? I think the the problem with a lot of these is that um, it, it's very much a postcode lottery. I think that's the same whether it's uh, in, in the wider population or in um, and people who are using drugs and alcohol, but in in my experience is that they're, they're just not really widely delivered in, in in addiction services. I know some places have kind of have had pilots, and some people have trialed it and and gone back kind of back and forth, but it's not a lot of consistency in what's actually being available. So I think that's a problem. Um, a few people that that I've spoken to that have you know, worked in services where they've been. Um, smoking cessation things offered i've had some really good things to say about it uh for me i think one of the 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 key things is that it's 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 tailored and it's targeted appropriately um i don't know about you but i I don't find my gps overly helpful about these things anyway they like to ask if people smoke but i'm not quite sure what that there's a great deal out there to support people generally certainly at the moment with with everything that's been going on and i think for some of these people perhaps need a little bit more of a push than, than just sort of being asked by their GP, if they're even accessing a GP. Like a lot of, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, of issues around people using drugs and alcohol accessing any kind of um, health services. So that's a problem. And again, adding that extra step, it's normally not offered in-house. It'll have to be you know referred out. Here's a, here's a, you know, a website or a phone number you can contact so-and-so. Yeah. It's not always appropriate depending on, you know, I know that we can't talk about people who use drugs and alcohol as one sort of, uh, population but you know there's a lot of variety in there but yeah i think it's that the problem that is not not easily accessible and it's not targeted a lot of people i've spoken to have said they were quite reluctant to go to a, a sort of mainstream service because they didn't want to disclose fears about um quitting smoking and that what impact that might have on their drink uh, drinking or drug use yeah absolutely so what would be your so you, you say about sort of the ideal what might be an ideal delivery do you have a do you have a view on what you think would be a good way of delivering that in uh, an addiction service, or like a good starting point, even from your from your research? Uh, well, this is something that I'm I'm still working on. So, I've, you know, I've spoken to quite a few people about what what they want. Um, 
I think it's to make it as accessible as possible is important. So a lot of people have said that they've, you know, they've already got that relationship with somebody at the, at the substance use service. So they'd be more comfortable going there and then getting that, like I say, tailored, tailored approach to, you know, that's going to address concerns about um, other drug or alcohol use. But yeah, for me, it was it's about making it as accessible as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. When someone's already kind of made the, the big step to engage with um, substance use treatment and, and go to that and engage with that, then it makes sense to maximise that and help that person as much as you can. Yeah, definitely. And building on that sort of therapeutic relationship that's developed, you know, is going to be really important. I think also it's it's important, not not just about it being sort of physically available, but it's about being available when somebody's ready for it. So accessible yeah. at kind of whatever stage of their recovery that they're at. So, you know, whether that's kind of a harm reduction approach to, you know, with someone who's still in, you know, very kind of problematic drug use to someone who, who might have been you know, stopped using some time ago and is now ready to address that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it being available at kind of whenever anybody wants it, really. Instead of it being kind of just like a, oh, we'll ask it your assessment and then not again. Or... Yeah. So from the point of view of the... Um... Um, the service or the um, key worker or support worker, whoever the the patient's engaging with, um, how do you think that those addiction services feel about um, providing those services, the smoking cessation element? I've I've had some really mixed reviews on this. I think the general consensus, with a few exceptions, is it's it's a great idea um, as long as they don't have to do it themselves. <laughs> mainly because they're already so overworked. I think that's increased significantly in the last couple of years with with, um, you know, with COVID and everything else. But yeah, workloads are just through the roof and they're already trying to kind of balance everything they have got without adding something else that a lot of them don't feel qualified to be dealing with. Yeah, because I suppose there might be other elements within um, the service that the, um, like the addictions treatment are already providing. There's sort of um, other elements that that their service users or other people who are coming to the services might need, like, um, I don't know, I suppose um, maybe something to do with like housing or other things that might be going on as well. So they've got a, a lot to, to be getting on with anyway, I suppose. Yeah. And so that, you know, caseloads are really high and, and everyone's, I think, you know, just finding it, they've, they've got plenty to be doing without adding something else. So a lot of people who were really supportive of the idea, you know, and said it'd be something they'd love to do if they either had allocated time, you know, and, and reduced work, load of other things to take that on or that you know there was a, a, somebody brought that service in with you know the specialist provider yes it sounds like there's issues with like training and just sheer capacity to be able to do it i think that the main issue is is about who's kind of commissioned to run these things um so at the moment generally they're not so it's very much kind of it's not our problem we're not funded for it we'd love to but so yeah. there just isn't provision for it and i suppose um a lot of addictions services might have other targets if you like that are set by the people that are funding them so they're not going to want to necessarily spend time on other things that they're not being paid to do and don't have the capacity to do yeah and I think some staff still very much see it that it's it's not their role we're here to deal with that and only that um not in a negative way I think it's just very much like no we're not going to sort of dilute what we offer by offering everything it's you know we focus on what we're good at and we do it well which is good um but also some people I spoke to just don't think it's important not not that you know smoking isn't important but that it's not the right place that the the service users just don't want that or don't you know it, it's it, they don't want it from us that kind of thing that's really great um so now we're going to move on to our interview with dr tom ainscoe um 
looking forward to hearing from him. Um, so we'll hand over to that now. Thanks for joining us today. We're joined by uh, Dr. Tom Ainscoe, who's going to tell us a little bit about his PhD, which looked at contingency management for smoking cessation uh, in opiate treatment patients, if that's correct. Um, thanks for joining us, Tom. My pleasure. So yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about the project to start with? Yeah, so um, it was a kind of a pre-made PhD project um, that I came into to sort of to try and run. So I had to kind of figure out a way to develop a contingency management intervention um, for tobacco smoking um, in people that were undergoing treatment for opiate addiction, um, mainly um, mainly heroin addiction. So it was mainly methadone maintained um, and patients. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a matter of coming in and sort of first finding out what contingency management was um because i'd never heard of it before i started my phd um i kind of quickly found out it was kind of the bare bones of it is essentially kind of positive reinforcement so um reinforcing desired behaviors with some sort of reward so in this case or in most cases in contingency management that's uh that's some sort of money um so in my study we did shopping vouchers um there were some there were some interesting kind of discussions around um around what vouchers or kind of what payment we would use at the beginning of the PhD. Um, there's some ethical concerns around giving um, opiate uses cash, um, which was a little bit infantilizing sometimes, but you can kind of, you could, I could understand the worries of kind of the ethics committee, but, but at the same time um, there, there was kind of quite strong um, evidence at that point that cash was more effective than vouchers, but we ended up going with shopping vouchers because, because that was just kind of the easiest sort of, the way forward um but yeah so developed the intervention it was a, uh i think it was an escalating with reset schedule that we used so that um that's where you start off at um a small kind of a small monetary amount for the first display of abstinence and then it builds each um each subsequent time that you take a recording um and if someone is non-abstinent then it resets back to the beginning rate and then raises again like that okay so it sounds like a really interesting project um, how, I'm guessing it didn't go quite to plan <laughs> because these things never do. <laughs> but no. but what what did you find out? What you know what what were the kind of challenges that were raised by this? I think one of the one of the best bits about my PhD that is that it's uh, it's a real example of kind of how badly things can go wrong, and you still kind of you'll still get your PhD. <laughs> um, it was a really really valuable experience for me as well. Kind of it really taught me sort of. Uh, the difficulties that can happen in research and particularly in this field when when you're trying to when you're trying to deal with smoking cessation kind of in um in drug and alcohol addiction and also mental health which i've also worked in it can be it can be quite difficult you can come up against quite a lot of resistance sometimes um there's still a prevalence of the idea that for people that have undergone drug treatment that um it's kind of the least of their worries that they still smoke sort of thing. And it's, it's far more important that you tackle their drug use. Whereas in reality, um, people are still far more likely to die from, from the tobacco that they're smoking than they are from the drugs that they are, the illicit drugs that they're using. Um, but that can be quite a difficult message to get across sometimes. So, um, it's, it, it was really important to sort of manage people's kind of expectations and kind of walk them through your logic for, for why why is it you thought that this was an important thing to do and normally you can bring a lot of people along the way with you um i think a lot of the time it just takes a kind of a bit of persuasion and people to kind of really understand because at, at the end of the day everyone's there to do the same thing right everyone's there to kind of make people's lives better um you're all kind of all on the same team sort of thing but as a researcher kind of going into that treatment 
um, uh, environment, you can sometimes be viewed with uh, a healthier level of skepticism. Um, so yeah, that was quite difficult. But yeah, um, there were there were kind of there were a litany of other errors as well that kind of happened throughout the course of my PhD. So um, it has happened that getting ethics was incredibly difficult. So there were issues around um, around the study in terms of quite a few decisions had to be made as to how we were going to kind of pose different things because contingency management itself is a bit of a uh, contentious topic um, with the public. It's kind of more politically than, than it is kind of within, within drug and alcohol treatment. I think most people are kind of aware of how useful it can be as an intervention, but it's not publicly kind of perceived um, especially well. Sometimes you kind of, it's kind of just seen as paying people money to do something that they should already be doing. Um, so there was kind of, it's quite difficult kind of, kind of thinking about how we were going to put it through ethics, but the actual ethics board was fine. Um, it just happened that at the time of my PhD was when the whole new IRS system was being launched. So I spent kind of 12 months trying to get my study through ethics, which when you've only got three years to do your PhD was uh, slightly stressful. Um, so yeah, I kind of, I didn't actually start collecting data until, um, until my third year. Um, and even once we were ready, um, we were ready to start collecting data. We kind of went to the treatment center, um, who we thought, or we'd been told had a, a smoking cessation clinic, but it turned out that it had kind of lapsed because there wasn't that much, um, interest in it from the patients. Um, and the staff were so kind of busy and so overrun that it ended up kind of being a way for them to buy back some time sort of thing. It kind of gave them an hour, well, three hours on a Monday afternoon where they could catch up with other work because they were meant to be running the smoking clinic and it wasn't actually happening. So that was, it was quite frustrating, but I mean, it was an interesting insight into, into the way the treatment was running. I mean, it was one of the only drug treatment centers that we could find that actually had a smoking cessation clinic to begin with. Um, and even then, um, it wasn't actually running. So it, it kind of spoke volumes to the attitude to smoking cessation within, within the, the drug addiction field sort of thing. Um, but yeah, we had to kind of go in, go back in, retrain everybody, um, uh, on the smoking cessation, um, and you know, use of medication and stuff like that for it. Um, cause there's some, there's some kind of intricacies in terms of, uh, like nicotine replacement, um, particularly for methadone. I think nicotine alters the way the methadone is metabolized. So the, the, there can sometimes be kind of changes that you need to make to people's drugs. Um, uh, especially if they're on methadone. Um, so yeah. Um, there was that and then we could eventually start running it um, and I was quite naive um, I'd not worked with kind of one-to-one -one with drug users before um, so I was kind of I ended up sort of fresh-faced sat in a in the waiting room um, of a clinic which was quite interesting um, uh, first nobody wanted to talk to me um, and I ended up setting myself up with um, a little uh, a little table in the waiting room and I bought loads of snacks and biscuits and drinks and you'll not believe how much better of a reception you get when you're giving people free food um so yeah I did that and then all of a sudden people wanted to come and talk to you and wanted to know what you were doing and it was actually kind of interesting sort of once I started talking to people how how interested they were in giving up smoking um, and kind of the demand for it that there was amongst the treatment population, it just didn't marry up with with what people in treatment were telling me. Um, kind of the people 
people that we were talking to in the services were like, no, it's not really that important. People aren't going to want to do it. But then when you actually talk to the people, then they, they know it's bad for them. They know it's bad. They're like, oh, yeah, I've been smoking ages. I've got a really bad chest. I kind of really want to give up, but I don't really know how. And it was... and. Also, even at that point, and this is quite a long time ago now, people had already started eating e-cigarettes. There were a few people who just who were all who'd already gone out and bought their own e-cigarettes to try and get off smoking um, smoking tobacco. Um, so yeah, that was quite interesting. Um, and the recruitment was kind of slow to begin with, and then kind of sped up. Sort of same as most research studies. Um, really, one of the problems that I had was um, was people uh, either agreeing to take part in the study. Um, and then not wanting to take part once they've been randomised to um, to the treatment arm. So there were two arms in the study. Um, there was the treatment arm where you were um, you got contingent management for um, being abstinent from smoking tobacco, and there was a control arm where all you had to do was attend the smoking clinic um, on a Monday. Um, so yeah, there were lots of people who didn't want to take part once they'd been randomised to the wrong condition. Um, and there were also people who were like, yeah, 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 I'll do the study. And I was like, well, do you want to sign consent? And they'd sign consent and they'd disappear into the distance and you'd never see them again. Um, but I mean, it, it's it's kind of to be expected, right? Like drug users can often have really quite chaotic lives and it's an unrealistic expectation sometimes to, to, to expect people to kind of sign on the dotted line and then turn up when you want them to do sort of thing. Is had quite a few people who signed up and I was like, okay, you need to be here on a Monday at this time come in then and then turn up on a Wednesday or another day and I'd be in there recruiting they'd be like oh I'm here to see you for the thing it's like I was on Monday but come back next Monday and we'll start you on the thing sort of thing so it was yeah it was it was quite difficult um, and it was more it was more admin than I was expecting it to be um, but yeah it was, it was it, it, at the end of the day it was still uh, it was still a really fulfilling experience to kind of be there kind of amongst people and sort of see how much people did want to stop smoking. That, that's a really interesting point, though, because it does seem to be this kind of idea that, oh, people aren't really interested, but that's not marrying up with what you, you're finding when you actually speak to people. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of the issue that you have uh, with this in in addiction is very similar to how it is in the field of uh, mental health, um, and obviously very closely related, is that there's a huge demand on staff time and a lot of staff very much feel like they're there to deal with the problem that they're there to deal with. Right. So if you're, if you're somebody who's working in an addiction center, you're there to deal with someone's addiction. Or if you're, uh, if you're working in a mental health ward, you're there to deal with that person's mental health issues. So the whole idea of asking them to kind of take on this role of smoking cessation isn't something necessarily that they're comfortable with. And I think a lot of the time people don't want to have that conversation because it it can it could possibly derail the good work that they're doing kind of in the other in the other areas for, for, for that person. Um I think there's also a bit of a history in this, um kind of a bit of a legacy issue almost. So smoking is formed kind of quite an integral part of of treatment um in in the way that it's it's kind of an acceptable addiction sort of thing so it's kind of fine it's it's also something that staff and patients often bond over um so you find a lot like kind of a lot higher smoking rates among staff that are working in these areas than you do sort of in the general public so in some ways it can almost be therapeutic 
some 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 staff will kind of use it as a therapeutic device where if if, if they're struggling with a the patient they can take them to the side they're like let's go for a cigarette go outside for a cigarette and that's where you have kind of like an actual talk or that's where kind of some of your work gets done so it's really really complicated it's it's not kind of necessarily as as simple as kind of everyone should give up smoking and and everyone should be on board with it sort of thing it's 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 a it's a difficult iterative process kind of getting that into into the psyche of population so you were looking at people that were currently on methadone and methadone treatment yep so it wasn't um it wasn't that we specifically chose people who were who were on methadone treatment it was we the the inclusion criteria that we used were initially a little bit naive um in the sense that we were that i decided i was like I only want people who were in treatment for opiate use, um, regardless of what that is, um, and that and that alone. So there were no other drugs of abuse. So not really knowing kind of um, of sort of uh, dual diagnosis and people with multiple dependencies. Um, that was basically the most impossible thing in the world to try and find someone that was just using opiates, um, which was interesting. Um so yeah, I kind of had to broaden that out, um, but we still just kept it as kind of any opiate use. So I think we had one person that had been that had become addicted to opiate-based pain medication, um, but the, it just happened to be that in that centre, the majority of people were people that had been using heroin and, and, and were now, I think all of them maintained on methadone, I think. Was there a specific kind of time scale? Was there any people that had been in treatment a relatively short time? people who've been on methadone for years no no we did so because it was a feasibility study um and because i i was really keen having come from a psychology background i was quite keen to try and get away from kind of overly restrictive um overly controlled studies so i was like I really want this to work in the real world sort of thing. That was kind of one of the, one of the major things for my PhD sort of contingency management had been tested lots in kind of quite a strict lab environment um, in really highly controlled studies, but it never really been used sort of as far as I was concerned, sort of like in the wild. Um, it, it, it just it hadn't really been tested properly in the real world. So I wanted to do that. So yeah, I didn't want to be too overly restrictive in kind of who we were testing. It was like, look, I just want to go into a drug treatment centre, anyone, regardless of what it is that they are kind of in treatment, like where, where they are on their treatment journey sort of thing is going to be eligible for this. And then, um, and then we'll kind of see how it works. Um, and one of the ideas that we'd had was to access all of the kind of the different treatment information um, after the fact. So to, to access the electronic files, kind of that, that was in our ethics application. So once we'd run the study, we could then go and look at everyone that had been, that had kind of taken part and then we could go and see sort of um, <clears throat> what other substances they were they were using. So everyone had to have a primary, um, their primary substance abuse had to be, um had to be opiates but then we, we once we'd opened up the the selection criteria it could be anything so yeah we were going to look at that we were going to look at kind of what opiate treatment they were on kind of how much um kind of the dosage um how long they've been in treatment all that sort of thing but when we actually came to that um the data was so patchy that it just wasn't it wasn't going to work so we kind of had to abandon that sort of it that part of it which is kind of annoying um but at the same time kind of my own fault because I probably could have accessed information kind of at the time whilst we were running the study, if we'd done it on a, if as as people were recruited, um, if we'd asked the 
the center to provide us with that information they probably could have done but we tried to access it from the kind of the big records thing afterwards and it just wasn't it just didn't work yeah, it sounds like a, a lot of a uh, lot of learning experiences <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah i mean exactly i mean it was one of the things that kind of your PhD is in some ways is, is, is kind of an apprenticeship, right? Like it's an apprenticeship on being an academic. And I think that you spend a lot of your time, at least in my experience, in your your undergraduate and your master's, you're given a kind of artificial idea of kind of how research works and kind of how difficult it is to do to implement in the real world and doing my PhD and finding out how hard it was and how many barriers there were and how many things go wrong and kind of how imperfect things can be. Um, and you just kind of have to get by. You just kind of have to deal with all these challenges was was actually a really valuable experience. And it's something that I still find really useful today. And I think that if I hadn't had all of these things, then I would have had a shock kind of like further down the line sort of thing. Um, whereas whereas now kind of when things when things do go wrong or parameters change, um, I'm generally pretty laid back about it because I've, I've already been stressed enough. <laughs> Any final take home, anything you'd like to, to tell us about, you know, what learning points, um, challenges of working with this population? I think working with this population is that you have to be patient um, and that you have to meet your expectations. Um, people, people have really hard lives and people have really chaotic lives but the thing is every person that I met in that centre was one of the nicest people I've ever met they were all really lovely people and I had some amazing conversations with people just kind of sat down chatting and it was it was amazing and it's an experience that the more senior you get in your career the less likely you're going to have so you really need to make the most of it while you're a PhD student because I've never had that amount of time to kind of sit down and deal with people like that since. So yeah, it's, uh, it is, it's challenging, but it's so worth it. Oh, brilliant. Thanks very much for your time. Much appreciated. No worries. <laughs> okay. Well, that was, that was great to hear from Dr. Ainsco on that, um, on that topic area. So coming back to Zoe, um, the last time j just before the interview with Tom, we were talking about um, the perspective that um, addiction services might think that service users don't actually want smoking cessation from them, that they'd rather focus on their drug or alcohol use. Um, from your research that you've done, what do you think about how service users feel about that? Do you think they do want that from their addictions treatment service? And a lot of the, the people that I've spoken to have said yes, very much. I mean, it very much depends on when that's offered. I think you start asking people when they're in kind of a, a crisis point or, you know, something, you know, very chaotic is going on, then no, they don't want to deal with it then and there. But later on, a lot of people have said they would have really liked to be able to, to, to talk to someone that they already knew in a service that they felt comfortable with and to be able to do that there rather than being sent to their GP or, you know, given a, a business card for a, a website or a phone number or something. So, yeah, I mean, obviously not everybody, but uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to um, have, have been really positive about it and said they'd actually really like to, at the right time, you know, to make a whole load of life changes, not just smoking, actually. A lot of people have said they'd like some sort of more information about healthier life in general, you know, well-being, physical and mental. Yeah. And for, and do you think there's something about, so I thought your story about the recovery walk and approaching um, you know people who were there who were smoking and them kind of 
not reacting positively. Do you think there's something about at what point in recovery that and how it's broached to that person? Definitely. I think one of the many issues with this is that it's just so kind of entrenched behaviour. So like when when I was working in, in treatment services, they may have changed a bit since then. It was a couple of years ago. Um, but if you tried having a group, anything more than an hour with pushing it without a cigarette break, you know, people would start getting very kind of anxious and twitchy and, you know, d- d- people would, would very much you know, be angry if you took away the cigarette break. Even people didn't smoke, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's part of the, 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 the bonding experience, whether that's, you know, with between service users or, or with staff or whatever but that was the whole that's when you go and have the little little chats and you know how are you doing and so I think that's really important so but that when I did some research in, in in a rehab that was something that loads of people said the non-smokers felt left out because they weren't part of that you know, they weren't bonding with people they weren't having that social interaction with staff and with with fellow um, residents which I think is really interesting and I don't know quite how we change that it seems to be the mentality that perhaps we had in the wider population some time ago that's changed quite a lot so now it's like so many people smoke in in treatment and it's just so it's the norm you're kind of the odd one out if you don't so how we challenge that i don't know but it's definitely one of the 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 issues i think that, that needs addressing i think that's really interesting because yeah i think in um the the wider society it was the laws have now made it so that it's hard work to be a smoker if you're out in public you've got to find a particular area you can't stand in you can't smoke inside at all you can't and if it's cold or or whatever it's it's not the most comfortable thing um where yeah I suppose in in treatment especially if there's a group element or like a connection with others it must be quite difficult if you're thinking about stopping smoking to then overcome that additional barrier of oh well I'm going to sit inside when everyone else goes out to have a cigarette yeah and I think that's a concern for staff as well I know when I worked there it was kind of a do I go out with people I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do here on the one hand I kind of want to go out and and kind of have a chat make sure everyone's okay and have those sort of informal conversations on the other hand is that am I supposed to be modeling better behavior for want of a better term you know I I can't very well ask people to quit smoking if I'm not having a cigarette with them can I Um, So it's it's a difficult one, and I think yeah, staff are in a kind of slightly awkward position if they do or have smoked, and you know how how do you do it without being really hypocritical? And, and by not smoking, you are kind of missing out on some of those opportunities to 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 yeah, to interact with people. So it's it's a challenging one, and until that kind of until the norm has changed so that smoking isn't so normal, um, I don't I don't know how we 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 do that, but it's certainly something very important to address. That's really interesting, this sort of thought that the staff are struggling with, do I, you know, do I smoke with um, the, with the residents or the service users? If I do, I might get a chance to sort of engage with them more, get to know them in a different way, like connect. But then you might want to develop, to deliver a smoking cessation intervention. And then the, they might be like, we, we already know you smoke. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's something about one of the interviews I did for Master said something very similar. He said it was about engaging in the same semi-illicit behaviour. <laughs> so it kind of puts you on the same level, which is really good for kind of breaking down that, that sort of hierarchy and, and kind of getting to know people and getting them to trust you and to you know, trust you with, with something you know, like the recovery that's so important. Absolutely. 
So um, one of the things you've that's really come across in the things that you've said is that this is not something that's massively delivered in addiction treatment services. The smoking cessation isn't a huge priority um, for lots of different reasons. Do you, have you spoken to any um, service users or patients who have received smoking cessation um, advice or treatment within an addiction service? I have. It's, and it, it does vary hugely so it's kind of you know I'm sure there are some services that are doing this and doing it really well um I've spoken to people mainly in, in the northwest of England so it's kind of you know a fairly localized situation um the people that I've spoken to that have had um some experience in this have generally been really positive um I think more frustrated perhaps that it wasn't more widely available um so it, a lot of these things I think start up and then kind of never really gain momentum enough to keep going so people kind of you know, finding it useful uh, and then, oh, there's not enough interest, so we're not going to do it, um, which is obviously really frustrating when you're just getting engaged with something like that. And I think it's, it's again, it's about how it's delivered and and what people want. I mean, that's, <laughs> I keep saying that, but that's what I think is most important is trying to find out what do people want and combine that with what's effective. And to some extent, that's, it's not just about what's effective for general you know general smoking cessation you know it's, it's how do we target this population and how what works for them and that's kind of a combination between what's generally effective and then what's acceptable and obviously it's got to be acceptable to the staff and to to people kind of organizing and delivering the services so it's a whole kind of a whole lot of people that need to sort of buy into this for order in it for, for in order for it to work but I, I do think that there's kind of an appetite for it well, that's been a, a really interesting discussion from my point of view, Zoe. It's not my area of research, so it's been great to hear about the work that you do. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add before we finish up? Oh, no, just thanks for having me. It's been, uh, been really interesting to, to hear from uh, your other guests as well. So, Yeah, thank you. And thanks to our, interview, our interviewees as, as well. Um, so that wraps up today's podcast. Um, thanks very much for listening.